All right, so now we're on part, I don't know what, <laughs> of Botany in a Day by Thomas J. Elpel. I think it's part three. Is it part three? I think so, yes. Okay, I, I'm willing to believe you. I'll go along with that. Part three, sure. <laughs> maybe maybe it's part four. But um, who who cares? Uh, um, the the it's the next part. Um, but we're going to focus on the um, magnolias, the magnolia subclass. So we've got the dicotyledon class, the magnolia subclass, and then surprisingly the witch hazel subclass. Um, I always I thought witch hazel was a rather obscure tree, but apparently they thought it was so significant that it, it should be the the ruler over um, all of these other orders and families, of which there's many of great interest to me in the witch hazel yeah. subclass in particular. Yeah, the magnolia subclass uh, I found to be like kind of not my thing but you know and that's another thing too is I think that for all of these there are of course going to be people that are powerfully interested in it especially people that are keen on medicinals and as much as I think the medicinals are interesting I find that the stuff about edibles and the plants that support edibles and lumber species to be about 30 to 60 times more interesting to me um, and and so, I mean, to, a lot of it is is like when you're trying to do uh, permaculture. Like, let's say you're out in Montana, and you're going to try and uh, grow a whole bunch of stuff without irrigation, um, and uh, uh, you're going to try and grow foods that don't normally do well in Montana outdoors, uh, things of that nature. It's like that's a hard enough challenge as is without having to try and also work in, um, you know, a bunch of other species that turn out to like not really play an enormous role in what you're trying to do. Whereas, you know, with with permaculture plants, there's there's a lot of stuff where it's like, wow, the, the black locust plays a lot of different roles, and it and it really is a great permaculture plant. So I I'm I guess. Um, <clears throat> When I'm looking at things that are, oh, it's got a pretty flower. A lot of people really like this plant because it's pretty. And it's kind of like, uh, I'm, I'm having a hard time wanting to read all the stuff that comes with the ornamentals. Right, I agree. Uh, I think that the, the, the medicinal side of things, for me, is, is of interest, mainly because a lot of times it, those are plants that will already grow naturally in the native ecosystems, and so they're really easy to introduce to a permaculture system uh, to fill maybe a gap in the understory or to you know fill in somewhere where we just aren't getting good ground cover. And that way at least we can get some productivity. Uh, and, and sometimes those plants are also edible by animals and, and not by humans, so that sometimes helps. True, so, true. And so that's another thing, too, is if, if a plant is growing as a weed... Or as a native, which, you know, according to people trying to grow a monocrop, <laughs> those are weeds too, then um, I think it's good to understand why is it doing so well here, and do I like it to be here, or do I want it, do I want to discourage it? Definitely. And if it has a use, and other than just letting it be, I would have to do work to take it out, then to me that's a benefit. 
So as we jump into the list, we've got two subclasses we're going to cover in this podcast. And the subclass is broken down, each subclass is broken down into several orders. <clears throat> and so starting off with the Magnolia subclass, the first order is the Magnolia order. And then the Magnolia order appears to have at least one family, the Magnolia family, which contains at least one genus, Magnolia. (laughs) (laughs) So that'd be Magnolia, 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 Magnolia. That's about right, yep. (laughs) Yeah. um, So, uh, and I've got really no interest in Magnolia's. Well, they don't. Uh, they don't really grow in cold climates. The uh, the tulip tree is probably the one that can go to the coldest uh, climate that I know of, and they like water. You know, they grow mostly in like the southeast or southern parts of the U.S. So it's it's not really applicable to to Montana as much. In particular, they may just be put there as ornamentals primarily. Okay. Uh, the next one out of the magnolia subclass is the birthwort order. And the birthwort family, um, and then uh, that's got uh, two uh, genera, but one and one of them is wild ginger, which is not a true ginger. Right. Oh, and I have mine. It's called the Dutchman's pipe family, um, and birthwort family. It has both the Aristolochiaceae. <laughs> Oh. Like aristocrats, um, like a Dutchman with a pipe, I guess, maybe. Um, Aristo Lachia CA. Yep. Ah, I think I did better than you. Probably. I think I got an extra syllable in there. <laughs> That's because I paid extra <laughs> for the best. Uh, and then mine goes uh, goes on to the, uh, uh, the Magnolia subclass, Water Lily Order which has the water lily family. Um, and then I'm looking through there, a lot of, lot of uh, lilies. Yeah, the water lily, uh, probably the, the one people would be most familiar with that's an edible is the, uh, the lotus plant. And you, the, people often eat the lotus seed and the lotus root, uh, but you have to wa- wash them first. Um, but that, that's one that, is not found in Montana native, but you may be able to grow some of it there. I think it's a little bit cold sensitive. In in my then, in my book, we have the uh, the laurel family actually in the magnolia order, Lauraceae, and that that was of interest to me because there are a few laurels that are you know of high use. There's the the California bay tree, which is bay laurel, like if you put bay leaves into uh, a soup or other things that you're cooking. And you can also uh, cook and eat the nuts and, and make a tea out of them, and they have a caffeine, so it could be a, a coffee uh, replacement. And then also there's the uh, so that one is the Umbulularia californica, the California bay tree or the Oregon myrtle, Umbulularia californica. And then there's also the avocado, which is Persia americana. And that that one, of course, grows in only warmer climates. But they are of interest, at least, because they're they're native to North America and uh, will grow easily in in many of our climates here. But a little bit moister, I think, than inland. So I'm 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 trying to cruise through uh, all of this stuff to try and find 
whether my stuff's just in a different order. All right, so so you you you've not mentioned anything about the Buttercup family. Nope, that one's coming later. So I think that one just I may have another family that he added to the book in the the newer edition. Okay, so which families did you add just now? That's the Laurel family. Just the Laurel family. Yeah, Lauraceae. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I don't think mine has that in here. All right. It's got a bunch of North American natives, and uh, you know, so he just ha- hasn't done a lot of research on it. Like when he has numbers of plants, uh, pretty much they're all dashes. All right. <laughs> so then he gets into the Buttercup family, which is part of the butter. So it's the uh, Magnolia subclass Buttercup order, Buttercup family. Right, um, the Renunculaceae. So, uh, and I didn't, I didn't notice, I, I didn't write anything down from there. I'm well. They're you know, not. They're mostly poisonous plants, like yeah. the larkspur and the monkshood. It said that the th- one of the things I found was interesting was that the monkshood, uh, an Asian one, is the most poisonous plant in the world. You can touch it and be poisoned by it, and sometimes even smelling the flower can give you the poison. Where, and and where does that grow? In Nepal. Oh, okay. All right. Right. So you you don't have to worry about that when you're wandering through the woods. <laughs> so um, then then it goes on to uh, the Haloborus subfamily. This is still in the Buttercup order, but there's a Haloborus subfamily. I think it's off of the off of the Buttercup family. Yeah. Okay, I don't have that one. So, and, oh, no, yeah. And so it's the Helleborus subfamily, and there's monkshood. Okay. Baneberry, columbine, uh, marsh marigold, uh, a bunch of these things. And then there's the buttercup subfamily. Um, oh, there's there's clematis and mousetail, buttercup itself. And then the peony subfamily. So that's and so then that covers the um, the buttercup family. Then we move on. Still in the magnolia subclass. Now we go to the barberry order, and we have the barberry family, and then we have barberry. What what you know what the um, the scientific name for barberry is? It just shows the genus. Yeah, uh, berberis, and then they have there's you know the common one berberis vulgaris. But there's an American barberry, which is Berberis canadensis. And uh, the barberries are interesting to me because they're broadleaf and evergreens. So, you know, if you're trying to get a plant in your permaculture system where it can be a, a good windbreak, for example, um, then an evergreen is really useful because we get really drying winds in the winter. And they're low-growing um, for the most part. The, the ones that are most um, commonly used for from my perspective in the West, because they're native out here, are the Oregon grapes, uh, Mahonia aquifolium. So I think <clears throat> the, the, to remind people what they look like, I mean, they look like the, they look like holly leaves with that stiff, stiff green leaf with all the little spines on the leaf itself, kind of sharp and pokey looking. Right. They're not real fun to walk through, the Mahonia aquifolium or Oregon grape. I, I like this one little bit that they say with uh, with all the barbarous ge- uh, genera. They're always a treat when you can find some, at least after you doctor them with enough sugar. <laughs> Which means they're not a treat 
when you don't talk to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and <clears throat> there's I've I've been on a lot of these wild edibles walks where they're like, oh yeah, take this and put it in your mouth, and then I can just feel my whole face trying to squinch down into my mouth. Um, and I believe I believe that feeling is referred to as astringent. Yes. It's trying. It's where your your pie hole tries to suck your whole face in, right? And, it, and that's that's an effect. It's a really fun one when it's someone else that's doing it. Here, try these. Oh, you made a funny face. <laughs> See now, one one time I was over at Skeeter's place, and he's like, "Here, chew on this," and and he handed me a leaf, and I put it in my mouth, and it turned my tongue numb. Oh wow! That- and I, I kind of felt like okay, clearly there was some sort of narcotic effect from that. And I kind of felt like, Skeeter, that was, like, not cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think if, if somebody's, like, like uh, if there's somebody that's, oh, I love to try all the drugs out there in the world and see what they're like, then by all means, give that to them. But I, I, I've never done any drugs in all of my life. I would rather like to not, I, I like to keep my clean record clean. And uh, I don't mind putting an edible in my mouth and try it and see what it tastes like. But, you know... <laughs> Clearly, there's some, but I also kind of thought to myself, that's that's actually an interesting thing to know because if you want, I don't know, I suppose if you're somebody's going to pierce your tongue, uh, which by the way, I read a lovely story about somebody who decided to get their um, their tongue pierced, and um, it got infected, and uh, the infection went up into their brain, and they ended up having to scoop out bits of their brain in order to beat the infection. That sounds like it was definitely worthwhile. Yeah, I think uh, this. I I think when people get piercings and tattoos and stuff, in a way, this is kind of like the Darwin effect. <laughs> it's it's like the Darwin's theory at work here. We're gonna we are going to thin the herd. Thanks for that, you know, folks. Um, <clears throat> all right. So let's see. So that something interesting along those lines is if you did have like a toothache or something, and you were you know you got it while you're out hiking and you you needed to get out and it was really bothering you, you could. You know, chew on that plant Skeeter gave you, or you could chew on um, some of the roots of these barberry uh, plants. It says here that um, there's a antibiotic, antiseptic compound, the berberine alkaloid, in the in the barberry plant. And berberine is not a narcotic alkaloid, but it is reported to have a novocaine-like effect if you chew the root prior to dental work. And the reference to that is Bigfoot. So somebody, huh. somebody who's named Bigfoot wrote a, you know, oh. did a medical study. On it. <laughs> uh. um, I I know that I had a uh, a girlfriend a long time ago that was um, a five element acupuncturist and herbalist, and I remember going into the woods and harvesting uh, lots of Oregon grape for something. We, but we were getting the roots. Right. Yeah, that's the part where the the berberine alkaloid is high, and uh, in, I think this is. Kind of interesting. It says that you know you can use it as a uh, novocaine-like effect, but as you're doing that, berberine is also stimulating your digestive tract, uh, cleansing your liver, and acting as a laxative. So not only is your mouth numb, you're also <laughs> <laughs> gonna have a laxative effect. <laughs> okay, <laughs> which can lead to great comedy. Right in the woods. <laughs> yeah, in the woods. Hey, buddy, chew on this. <laughs> Oh, man. But, so then it moves into the poppy family. And, of course, you know, um, hey, heroin, great. 
Um, uh, and uh, it's got a few different species there. The bleeding heart family. Well, with the, the witch hazel family. With what? The one thing that um, I wanted to mention about the poppy family is that they uh, there's several species that are native to North America and also grow naturally in very dry climates like uh, the prickly poppy and the California poppy. And they're, they're you know potentially good as, as ground covers and as insectary plants and things like that. And um, you know, if worse comes to worse and you get you know really bad uh, bruise or something like that or a, a sprained ankle and you need something to, to give you some pain relief, you know, I would go with ibuprofen first. But you know, if you can't get to the store or something, one of those might help. Okay. Um, the Bleeding Heart family, the Witch Hazel family. So we're still in the Witch Hazel subclass, Witch Hazel order. order. Oh, wait. No, this is the move. This is when we move from the Magnolia subclass. So the last that last one I've got in the Magnolia subclass poppy order is the Bleeding Heart family. Yes, that's the last one I have as well. And then we finally get started in the Witch Hazel subclass with the Witch Hazel order. And there's only one thing in the Witch Hazel order, and that's the Witch Hazel family, at least in this book. So I'm just going to notice a, a pattern here from the last, uh, from the Magnolia subclass, is, is that a lot of them are toxic or you know have some sort of strong effect um, medicinally. But before we leave, I just wanted to okay, yeah, put that out yeah. there, kind of an in general sort of a thing. Yep. Now in the in the witch hazel subclass or yeah in the witch hazel there's a lot of interesting things a lot of a lot of really great permaculture plants but um uh under the witch hazel family you've got the witch hazel and you also have sweet gum um and then you go into the elm family Yeah do you have any any love for elms oh but here's an interesting thing so we've entered the witch hazel subclass the stinging nettle order and so the elms are part of the stinging nettle order. Which is pretty fascinating. Actually, several of my favorite plants are part of the stinging nettle order, and I never knew that before. But elms, within the elms uh, family, which is Ulmaceae, and elms are Ulmus, so Ulmaceae is a family of elms. I really like elm trees. Uh, you know, a lot of people dislike, for example, the Siberian elm. Uh, but I've found that it's a really good pioneer tree where I am. It'll grow with pretty much no water. You can coppice it. Goats love to eat it. Uh, so you can use it to get other trees established while you have goats in your system feeding them the elm tree. Uh, the Siberian elm, which is Ulmus pamilla, uh, also has the, a pretty good lumber that you can cut out of it. You know, it, Some of it can be kind of quirky and pithy, but I have a, a friend with a tree business and a uh, bandsaw mill and he mills up the, the Siberian elm, elm uh, trees that he cuts down for people and make, he's made a couple of structures out of 100% Siberian elm and has been really happy with working the wood. Wow. And Now, is it, a, is it considered a hardwood? Um, it has harder wood than like the American elm, for example. Okay. So it's fast growing right. and it has relatively hardwood, which is, you know, is a nice... Uh, combination and it, it's coppiceable and it actually burns for a long time as firewood too. It's a slow burning firewood, so it, it has many uses. But primarily, my interest in it as a, is as a pioneer tree or maybe a woodlot tree that 
is then succeeded up by other plants. Um, and then the hackberry, of course, is interesting to me because it makes edible berries and it's a tree and also is a, of the elm family, so it's really hardy in these kind of dry and cold climates of the Intermountain West. Have you tasted hackberry before? I have not eaten a hackberry before, no. Have you? Okay. No, no, I don't think I have. So it may be one of those <clears throat> famed wild foods that requires a good dose of sugar. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I I mean, I've eaten I've eaten a lot of stuff where I'm sure I was told what it was, but it's it's like uh somehow I've I've forgotten a lot of it. I mean, unless I I have a, a great deal of knowledge of the plant beforehand, then I don't I don't seem to, you know, remember I guess. So maybe I've had hackberry and I don't know it, but I don't think I have. The next one is is out of the witch hazel subclass, the stinging nettle order, the mulberry family. Yeah, this is high on my list of favorite families of plants from around the world. Uh, Moraceae is the mulberry family, and uh, you know, I, what was interesting to me is I never knew that Osage orange was part of the mulberry family. And uh, Osage orange is Maclura pomifera. Is the the species the genus and species name the scientific name, and it's one of the best woods for bow making, is what he says here. Even though it's full of knots. Um, Do you know what the scientific name is for mulberry? For well, there's lots of mulberries. Morris is the genus, and then in North America we we have I think both white and red are native, and then black is commonly grown. So there's Morris rubra is the red mulberry. And that, that grows to a pretty large tree. It'll grow 40 feet tall or so. Um, Morris alba is the white mulberry. And that's a little bit smaller. It's like a 25 to 35 foot tall tree. And then Morris nigra is the black mulberry. So they're all named just after the colors with their scientific name. And that's the color of the fruit. Um, well, the white mulberry can have blackberries. But often huh. the white fruited, white, white fruited mulberries are often white mulberries. Okay. Um, right. And then the black mulberry is the one that uh, is the species where you have, for example, the Pakistani mulberry, where it's a you know three-inch long berry and very tasty. Uh, but those are a little bit less cold tolerant than both the white and the red. All the all of the mulberries that I have ever sampled, and, I, and I've sampled six or seven, um, kind of have. I mean, they're like a they're like a long blackberry. And and they do have a strong blackberry flavor, but it's like it's like somebody also added some stinky shoe flavor in there too. Oh wow, that, that's been my experience universally. But you're you're not thinking that you've had that experience? No, most of the ones that I've eaten have been really sweet. You may have uh, had them before they were ripe. That's possible. That's possible. The birds get them real quick once they turn ripe. So I think sometimes pe- people pick them early. Um. But that's another, another thing too is that like um, some some of the mulberries will produce mulberries um, June, July, and August. Yeah, and just just rain them down. If you got a huge tree, they will just pour down. So you definitely want to be careful because they're the red and black ones, black fruited ones, really are uh, leave a nice purple stain. So if it's raining down somewhere <laughs> where you are, have heavy traffic, that stain's going to be carried to a lot of other places too. So now he's got a mark off in here that there are zero mulberries that are native to Montana. Uh, and then he says, My family lived in Los Altos, California, until I was 12 years old. 
We picked the leaves of the mulberry trees in the yard and fed them to silkworms we raised in the house. The berries of these trees are edible and vary from sweet to acidic. The berries of some species are a significant food source in certain parts of the world. Medicinally, a tea of the bark is used as a laxative and to expel tapeworms. The milky juice and the unripe fruit may, may cause hallucinations, nervousness, and an upset stomach. So awesome! Well, don't don't eat them when they're not ripe. Right. <laughs> Little tip for you: when you see them all over the ground, then the, then it's time to start eating them. There you go. Um, and so one of the, the identification patterns that they suggest is look for trees and shrubs with alternate leaves and milky sap. So that's a, a good thing to know is if you break it, it's probably going to have milky sap, uh, latex-like sap, and it's probably really sticky. Uh, I, I heard uh, Eric Tonsmeyer talking about a mulberry that he had selected uh, that has uh, edible leaves, actually. And so they coppice it and eat the, the tender young leaves and, and shoots because mulberry is another great tree because it is also coppiceable. Huh. So that was interesting now to me. You can have year-round um, leaf crop from a perennial that you know can be deep-rooted and is relatively drought-tolerant. So, I, and I think mulberry is a is a great permaculture plant, um, and it's it's like one of the number one things to grow for uh, your chickens to self-harvest the food. Definitely, it's 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 an excellent chicken feed, and it'll bring birds in from all over, and they'll just rain down uh, bird manure also. So it's a good fertilizer plant, and drops all those mulberries <laughs> too. I mean, it's really going to rapidly ramp up your soil with mulch. <laughs> You know, in a way, you could say that even though technically the way we normally say nitrogen fixer is not true, in a way, a mulberry is, <laughs> because mysteriously, all this nitrogen appears under the tree. Yeah. Mysteriously. Yeah. Big white cakes of it. <laughs> and the kind of noisy bird forays that go along with that. <laughs> and it's fast growing. It's a great pioneer tree. I use it all the time for establishing areas, you know, like uh, windbreaks and... Um, just as an overstory to get things quickly going underneath it uh, in bare ground because they tolerate drought and poor soil and everything. You know, I, I kind of wonder, here, here we are looking at the stinging nettle order of the witch hazel subclass, and it seems to me like, so far, I'm just taking a quick look, all of the plants that are of the stinging nettle order, including the mulberries, are good pioneer species. And yes, they are. All of them are. Yeah, pretty so much. So you said the same thing. You said the same thing for the elm and uh, and the mulberry. And I know the next two are really good pioneer plants. Yeah. Um, and then this, you know, the other plants in the mulberry family that are good North American plants. Uh, the Osage orange is a great pioneer plant. Tolerates real poor conditions. Grows fast. Uh, probably the, I think it's the highest BTU. Uh, per pound, yeah. or per uh, cord, actually, probably. I don't know about and, and it's also the one that will last the longest. Um, like, if you make something out of Osage Orange, that it will last the longest outdoors. Like, it, uh, it, it's very slow to rot. Yeah, even slower than Black Locust. And they, which is exactly why I know this is because it's like oh the I, you know Black Locust actually comes in second place to Osage Orange on those two counts. But um, but I also understand that Osage Orange, I don't think it grows up here in Montana. Does it grow where you are? 
Yeah, it might be a little cold there. Uh, it's not native here. I would have to plant it. And okay. I'm planning right. on planting it. Um, my friend uh, Craig Sponholtz from Santa Fe said that uh, he's seen it grow there very well. And they, they okay. have a similar uh, cold uh, season to us here in Reno. We're you know, kind of on the border of Zone 5, Zone 6. It says something in the book here about how Osage Orange, uh, the wood from it is almost all knots. Yeah, so not fun to split with an axe. Yeah, (laughs) I think, and and I think that if you tried to take some sort of power, um, some sort of hydraulic powered uh, uh, splitter or something to it, it might just turn it into mush. (laughs) You know, just just a pile of like little blocks of of, of rocks. But um, so so in the witch hazel subclass stinging nettle order, there are in this book four families: the elm family, the mulberry family, the hemp family. And the stinging nettle family. Right. And I just so, want to do one more uh, comment on the mulberry family because it's such an awesome family. It's distributed worldwide all the way from the tropics to basically the um, boreal forests. It's one of the plants that has the widest tolerances of uh, different climate types, the mulberry in particular. And then as you get to the more tropical areas, you have figs. As in you're in the subtropical and, and tropical areas, and then you have things like jackfruit and breadfruit, which are awesome plants, uh, pretty much staple crops, staple tree crops as you get to wetter areas. So it's a, a very prolific family for around the world. So then we move into the to the um, witch hazel subclass, stinging nettle order, the hemp family, cannabaceae. Right. And um, uh, I thought that was kind of interesting that, that the hemp stuff is inside of the stinging nettle order. Um, and then they talk about, you know, pot stuff. And, and of course, you know, um, people are bonkers about pot, so they all know everything there is to know about pot. So fine, 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 fine. Yeah, we can probably skip that. I'm sure there's a lot more information <clears throat> out there. I know on permies we've gotten to the point where we pretty much we, we, we pretty much discourage any discussion of uh, cannabis um, because it's it's like they all want to get into the politics of it and and it's like oh you know it makes such great cordage and stuff and it's kind of like stinging nettle makes better cordage how come you're not saying this much about stinging nettle yeah I, I don't know and, then, and their response is stinging nettle makes cordage so so we kind of made up some kind of rule it's like that says. Uh, you know, you, you can't talk about cannabis until you've at least said that much about stinging nettle first. Because <laughs> then you're just talking about it because it's a political thing. And, you know, the the site, we were very big on, like, not allowing discussion of, of politics. Yeah, and it, I mean, if you want cordage, why not plant hops, which is actually also in this family also. The humulus uh, is the hop spine, and humulus lupulus, it grows... 30 or 40 feet in a year once it's established? That sounds like a massive amount of cordage to me. See, I, I know of hops um, being... I mean, of course, hops is a, a component of beer, but um, uh, hops is something that I've seen in a lot of places where it's grown on the south side of a greenhouse. It's perfect for that because it dies back all the way to the ground every year, and the vine is not very heavy. It's all... Uh, it's non-woody tissue, so you can grow it on just like uh, a couple of stakes or you know some lean-to logs with uh, twine spread between them. You don't need a sturdy trellis like you would for a grape plant, for example. Right. So then, what it'll, what it'll do is is that by the time you get in July, 
it's pretty much covered all the glass. And so now it's 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 not getting too hot inside the greenhouse. Definitely. Um, and and then like first frost hits and then boom, it's all gone. And now all the it sun dies. gets in to the greenhouse. And now all the sun gets in. Yeah. I always kind of thought that was like hops was pretty smart in that in that way. <clears throat> yeah, it's perfect. It's a it's a biological switch or thermostat. So then we get to the final family. So we're in the witch hazel subclass, stinging nettle order, stinging nettle family. So of course it it's about stinging nettle. Yeah, and Casey is the stinging nettle family. So uh, um, they've got a picture here of of Urtica. Dioica, which is the stinging nettle plant. <clears throat> now it says here something that like there's there's two species of stinging nettle in Montana, and um uh and it, there's 35 globally, but um I I I I'm kind of curious now what is uh, what are the differences between them, and then I I'm also kind of curious about like, you know varieties. I remember being somewhere once where this guy was talking about how he pretty much. For like three weeks out of the year, it was made up like I don't know eighty ninety percent of his diet was stinging nettle. Wow! And and uh, and so he was perpetually harvesting it, and he found four different varieties. And I think he found a variety that seemed to be a little bit purple, not to be confused with dead nettle. <clears throat> which I'm not sure which one of these is dead nettle. Surely is it wood nettle? Maybe wood nettle is dead nettle. Um, and of course, maybe they aren't even showing all of the genera uh, in the book here, but. Uh, he he said that there's four different varieties and and some were definitely tastier than than others. I thought that was pretty cool. Definitely, yeah. I'm not that familiar with it. I just, I mean, I'm just familiar with the common stinging nettle, the urtica dioica, and uh, with eating that. But I've, I've, I'm not familiar with the other species in the family or genus even. So one of the things I marked off on on the stinging nettle family is the hairs on the underside of the nettle leaves function as hypodermic needles to inject formic acid into the skin when you come into contact with them. Now, my understanding is that that's not true. That that what it is is that they are like little vials of acid, and then when you touch them, the vials break open and the acid comes out. And then the acid gets onto your skin, and so it's an external only kind of thing. Interesting. That's my understanding that they are not I mean they they look like needles, but that that's not how they function. They're, I mean I suppose that if you tried to you could get them to stab you. <clears throat> but um but really it's all about breaking the needles. They're they're very delicate. Yeah, I I have never uh, looked at them in particular under like a magnifying glass or microscope while breaking them to see. I know that uh, it is unpleasant to have rolled around in stinging nettle uh, in shorts and a t-shirt. <laughs> You've experimented with that, uh, personally. Yeah, not intentionally. <laughs> but, you know, going swimming down by the river, and then you come out and pick a soft spot that maybe looks like mint. And this was when I was younger and not familiar with the plant. Uh, after that event, I have become much more familiar with the plant. And, and don't sit down next to it unless I take some precautions. But it's a wonderful plant to eat. I mean, you can just if you just grab the leaf from the top and squeeze it, more there's more needles on the bottom and the stem than the top of the leaf. So you can roll it from the top and just put it right in your mouth raw, and it's really easy to eat that way and not get stung. 
Right. Yeah. And so I think basically all you got to do is crush the needles. When you when you crush the needles, then then you're safe. And so I've got a, I think I've got seven videos about uh, stinging nettles. And uh, and so in one of them, it's got the woman where she's eating the stinging nettles raw. And so she yeah, she harvests it barehanded and rolls it into a ball and then eats it. Um, and then a, a, a little girl did the exact same thing, <clears throat> and they were both unscathed. Uh, but the rest of my videos are about you know harvesting them with gloves and then taking them home and preparing them into like I've got one video that's a lasagna and one that's about you know eggs and nettles and and um, there's one where uh, um, a soup is made a Native American uh, soup is made by Heidi Bohan. Um, the author of uh, um, an amazing book on that topic. One of the books I was kind of digging through uh, the last time we made a podcast. Where is it? There it is. The People of Cascadia. Oh, nice. So, um, uh, but even though I've got all those, um, and, and one, in fact, when I was with uh, Heidi Bohan and these two, uh, and this woman, these two women and this girl, uh, in addition to Heidi Bohan, uh, it's like, uh, you know, because whenever I see nettles, I always see them as an indicator of rich soil and uh, moisture. And so uh, the nettle patch that we went to was that was where this enormous cottonwood tree was. And, and the ground didn't seem all that moist, but there was a cottonwood tree, which is also an indicator of moisture. And so I thought, well, okay, so under the soil, there must be a, a significant amount of moisture. And we were in an area that did get a lot of rain. Um, it was on the uh, uh, western slopes of the Cascades. Um, so uh, in Carnation, Washington. And so I'm kind of like, well, wait a minute. If there's a lot of nitrogen here, how did the nitrogen get here? And then uh, kind of like what we were talking about before, it's kind of like... Uh, um, Oh yeah, as I look at some of the leaves from the nettles, I see where the <laughs> nitrogen is being poured onto them. This this tree, this immense, magnificent tree, which went up into the air, you know, uh, more than 100 feet. Uh, uh it had all of these bird roosts all over it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That the birds availed themselves of, and what a great spot to take a dump when you need to. And probably so, all that cotton from the cottonwood too comes down and and adds to that uh fer- fertility. Uh, possibly yes yes so a uh, huge nettle patch just amazing nettles and um uh and then Heidi Bohan was emphatic that you never harvest nettles um when they become more than knee high although later i've heard somebody say that there is some truth to that but not absolutely true you can harvest them when they're higher but you got to be watching for these certain things. So it's like a, a much richer space than that. Um, and the reason <clears> is that they've accumulated a lot of minerals and are potentially really hard on your kidneys at that point, I think. Right. It can get to be hard on your kidneys. And, um, uh, and so you want to you know, go easy. But, uh, but until then, I mean, so if you, if you go by the knee-high rule, you're always safe. And, and it's, it turns out to be one of the best foods for you, uh, and it's it's an and in fact it's uh, something about it. If you eat it in the spring when it's um, fresh, then it does something about um, cleaning your system out for after winter, you know. And then plus giving you like it's it's, it's got just this immense amount of vitamins in it. And on top of that, uh, it's got more protein in it than soybeans. So uh, it's it's like the highest protein plant that I'm aware of. 
Well, um, but and and when you're like, <clears throat> you ever had that time when it's like, uh, um, boy, I just really need a hamburger. I need a hamburger. <laughs> uh, and what you need is I, a nettle burger. And it turns out, so I've had that where it's like, oh, I, I, oh, I'm going to die if I don't have a hamburger. I'm, I just crave a hamburger now. Uh, I'm like wimpy, <laughs> and and so, um, uh, and then you have nettles, and somehow it totally meets that craving. So uh, plus, if if you get them where they're just like slightly steamed, oh yeah, they're really then, good. Then they're fuzzy. It's like you're eating this fuzzy food. <laughs> it's a bizarre texture. The rest of the time, I just use them like I would spinach and something. Yeah, and it, I found that if if you cook them too long, they get really strong flavored. Oh yeah. So I, I usually try to to cook them just pretty lightly, or or if I'm cooking them, use uh, less than I would have thought because they're pretty strong. See now, I'm I'm generally not a big fan of greens, but uh, I have no problem eating tons of nettles. I like like kale. I mean, kale's got to be done right, or else I can't. I just really don't care for it. And I've had some spinach that's like that's damn nasty. Yeah. And uh, but but nettles, I I have yet to eat nettles where I didn't like them. And and I even did some of the cooking, and I'm not a very good cook. Awesome. Um, <clears throat> One of the other things that um, I think nettles are a good example of is what in permaculture uh, we call as. A resource which increases with moderate use. It's one of the resource categories, and that's actually the best resource category. So if you go in and you harvest them, like you were saying, before they're knee-high, then it's likely that they'll grow back again. You'll get a new flush of young stuff that, that's still harvestable so that you extend the harvest season just by harvesting. Excellent. Excellent. The next thing I have marked off is worldwide there are 45 genera and 550 species. Six genera are found in North America. The mulberry family is sometimes included in this family. How wild is that? So, so sometimes people, some people, some botanists, I suppose, will say, oh, no, no, all the mulberries really go inside the nettle family. That whole thing that some people are doing about the mulberry family, that's just crazy talk. <laughs> That is that is pretty wild because the mulberry has fourteen hundred species worldwide, which is way more than the nettle. No, like twice as much almost, okay. and, or three times as much. And so to lump them together, I mean, it, it just doesn't. That'd be a big job. Yeah, seriously, it surprises me too because it doesn't look like any of these other plants are, are trees or, or woody plants at all in the nettle family. Uh, the next comment is: most species in the family are edible as pot herbs. I don't know what a pot herb is. Um, it, I think it's an herb that you grow in a pot on your window, and you cut it and throw it in the pot and steam it and eat it. Ah, uh, okay. The plants have strong fibers for making cordage. The silk plant is said to have the longest fibers known in the plant kingdom with a tensile strength eight times greater than cotton. Pretty cool. Definitely. So, cool. so why... Uh, that that's the next plant to throw out there to, to people that are talking about hemp as a fiber plant. It's like, well, how about the silk plant? <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is a, which is part of the stinging nettle family, right? And and so it's kind of like you know, so, so you know, they're talking about the hemp family, 
And it's like, oh, yeah, you know, so if, if you're not talking about the Sting Nettle family at the same time, you're you're just, you know, keen on the THC or something. And and so you're just, and the, the cordage is just an excuse. Right. All right, so um, uh, the, the first species that are listed here, they've got, or they've got three genera listed out of, you know, what was it, 45 genera? they got three listed here, and the first one is for wood nettle. Um, zero uh, native to Montana. The young leaves are edible after cooking to destroy the stinging hairs. The fiber from the stems is up to 50 times stronger than cotton. So um, the other one was just uh, the one we mentioned earlier uh, about the silk plant. It, it uh, was eight times stronger, but it was the longest fibers. Right, and then now we have 50 times stronger, which sounds awesome. I mean, then you have things that are that are there for strength, like this wood nettle, and then you have fibers which maybe are, are better for length if you need a, a fabric that is really continuous but not uh, not necessarily as strong. I wonder how, how soft they are. You know, that, that to me is one of the great things about cotton is it's so soft when you compare it with something like linen, um, you know, where you, they have really durable fibers from the flax plants, but it's just not really comfortable to wear. Right. So, uh, or or wool, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. Silk is nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, under under the part about Urtica dioica, did I pronounce that correctly? I think so. That's how I pronounce it. Urtica dioica, which is stinging nettle, the actual... Um, uh, species. Nettles can be easily dried and powdered for use as a flour additive and stew thickener. Now, I know that this is like, I've never seen a plant dry this easily. So, um, just take a paper sack, go out and, and harvest nettles and put it in the paper sack, and you're done. Just set the paper sack, take the paper sack home. If you, if you uh, pull some of them out raw, and use them, that's great. And uh, if you just leave them there in the paper sack, they will dry in the paper sack, and you're done. Yeah, just don't jam them in there too hard. You know, you, know, you don't want to, like, pack the paper sack full with five pounds. Oh, right, yeah, you only pack them in loose. Yeah. It's just, as, this is, you just drop them in. You don't, you don't, you know, shove them in. Right. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, the plants may be dried in the sun or bundled at the roots and hung inside to dry. When they are dry, simply use your hands to strip and powder the leaves. It is especially nice to take nettle powder along on winter camping trips when other greens are scarce. They should be harvested when young before blooming. The plants may accumulate nitrites or form calcium carbonate crystalliths as they continue to age. Yeah, so that that's, I guess, part of the... Uh Kidney toxicity is some of those things, probably the crystalliths or yeah, cystalliths. So. Um, and, and the last note I found here is the tea can be used to curdle milk for making cheese. Interesting. <laughs> now, I know a lot of people who drink nettle tea a lot, and they're just crazy about it. And then there, I've known some people where it's like something in their system is off, and their doctor says, drink nettle tea. And and they're like, oh, it's so expensive. You go to buy it, and it's like $15 a pound. 
And I'm, I just kind of think that, wow, it seems like it's always so easy to find, and it dries so crazy easy that um, surely, you know, a person can do this themselves. Yeah, and, and if you uh, plant it along the pathway to your secret garden, you will have fewer people entering the secret garden. <laughs> fewer people, more deer. <laughs> Because I think I, I mean, my impression is goats gobble it up, you know, and deer and goats—they're—they're they're like, uh, you know, peas in a pod, cousins, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's like I always kind of think of deer as like being, you know, just a step off from being wild goats. Yeah. So um, yeah, they'll deer deer will, will gobble it up. It's like, oh, look what I found, Candyland. <laughs> yeah, the, when I was first introduced to eating sting nettle, uh, the guy that taught me about it had large cans dried full of the the nettle that he saves both for tea and for exactly what uh tom elpil's talking about here for hiking in the off season when there's not a lot of plants around to, to harvest i i think it's great green to add to stuff to like you know eggs or something it's dried and add it to the eggs you know in the middle of winter and and so it it, ju- it does seem like something where it's like you know what would be a smart thing to do is to you know get twenty sacks of this to get through the winter. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a protein for crying out loud. And people that, for example, uh, you know feed seaweed to their chickens, this might be a good alternative to that that you could harvest locally and get that protein feed for the winter for them as well. Excellent point. Oh yeah, excellent point. Um, you know, there is a video that I saw on YouTube where they had some kind of place where they had a nettle eating contest, kind of like a pie eating contest, but it was nettles. And so then each person had like this mound of of fresh raw nettles sitting in front of them, and I and I do think that they ate it with with their hands behind their backs, so they just dipped their face into. It. <laughs> And and so I'm kind of thinking to myself, they've got to get stung like crazy. Oh, and that's another thing too. I've I've met people who had arthritis or something like that, some sort of. I, I'm pretty sure it was arthritis. And, and in fact, I've met a woman whose job it was to whip people with nettles. <laughs> so she worked in a naturopath's office. And then these people would come in with arthritis, and they had this stock of nettles. And, and then they would whip their back with, with the nettles, and somehow it helped, like, a lot. And I think he even mentions it in here. I didn't mark it off. Um, oh, anyway, nutty things. And so there's lots of... Lots of uses for it. Yeah, that's the, that formic acid, because people use uh, bee stings for that as well. Oh, man. <laughs> for arthritis. And, and like, uh, actually, I've, before I've done it where I've been on a hike, and, like, if I'm doing a lot of downhill and it's really rocky, and my one of my knees starts to hurt, and I come along a, a riparian area where there's nettle, because where I am, they pretty much only grow near streams. Uh, and and I go for, I'll actually go for a walk in the nettle, and let it sting my knee that, that's hurting, and that will kind of stimulate more blood flow to it, and it'll actually uh, make it so it hurts less. Oh, wow. Awesome. <laughs> so sometimes you do want to be stung, I guess. So I, I think that's the end of the witch hazel subclass. 
Um, you're ready? To, well, no, wait, no, wait. We got more in the witch hazel subclass. We that's the end of the steam nettle order. Right now we're going. We're staying in the witch hazel subclass, which continues to be awesome. Even though, and now the witch hazel is such a, a lesser known tree, we're, we're really going through a lot of really good ones here. And we're going into the walnut order. Another one of my favorites. And so, um, uh, out out of the walnut order, it's called Juglandaceae. That's the walnut family. That's correct. Juglandaceae, the walnut family. And now, um, before we started recording the podcast, we were talking about the idea of um, uh, the scientific names, the species names, and uh, and you were like, oh yeah, I've memorized all of those. <laughs> Well, well, maybe not all, not of, all them, of them, but definitely not all one. of them. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Them at least. Well, so so can you do pecan? Pecan is Caria illinoisensis. <laughs> so, how about how about uh, pig nut? I don't know those ones, the, and even the hickories, I'd have to look up the Caria, um, okay. the shell bark and the shag bark. The, the right. nice thing about right. Carias is that they are lower or even potentially absent of juglin in their leaves or juglinidae um, juglone that's the compound yeah juglone or juglins I've heard it referred to as juglins or juglone there might be two chemical constituents um, both which are potentially allelopathic so that, that's the nice thing about you know those plants is that they're less allelopathic and can be planted with lots of different um, guilds whereas the walnuts the true, true walnuts the juglins plants are uh, much more difficult to find companions for you know, I have video footage, which I have not put up on YouTube yet, where I'm at Brian Kirkliet's farm, sending us to a black, uh, a black walnut. And he says, look at that on the ground right there. See that bubbly stuff right there? Uh-huh. That is the juglone bubbling up out of the ground wow. right there. Um, and it's like, you know. <laughs> so I got, I've got video of it. I, I just haven't posted it up yet. That's so under uh, un, so, under the genre of juglans, which is going to be your walnuts and your butternut, uh, it says there are about 40 species of walnuts in the world, and they all produce edible nuts, but of varying quality. Walnuts are not native to Montana, but the black walnut is often planted domestically. Some friends and I collected black walnuts on an expedition in eastern Oregon where the trees escaped cultivation. We gathered them in the spring, so the husks had already rotted away. Compared to the English walnut, the black walnuts are mostly shell with only a little meat inside. The job of cracking the shells and picking out the meat with a sharp stick seems only marginally productive. I was able to extract about one cup of nut meat per hour of effort, but it sure was good. One author recommends gathering the nuts in the fall and drying them before removing the husks. After husking, the nuts should be crushed, then slowly boiled in water. The oil and nut meats rise to the top, while the shells settle to the bottom. The oil and meats can be used separately or blended together to make Walnut butter. The trees can also be tapped for syrup in the springtime. Awesome. So, so yeah, the black walnut, 
uh, Juggling's Nigra. Is oh, man, I, see that's the one I knew. That's the only one I knew. And there, you stole it from me. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, well, Juggling's Nigra is a, a really hardy tree. Uh, you know, it'll grow in fairly dry conditions, um, even relatively moist conditions, and uh, they'll just pop up in areas down in, in Southern California or in Central California. They'll just grow out of hillsides naturally. Um, and it may be through this escaped cultivation. But you can always uh, graft the English walnut or uh, Juglans regia onto the black walnut once it's growing. And that will give you a hardier rootstock uh, that grew straight from a seed, hopefully, and is uh, relatively drought-resistant but still produce those bigger, uh, nicer, edible nuts that you get in the, the English walnut. And when you get to... Um, Northern California and Oregon, then you have the butternut, uh, which is, I think, native to that area. And I'm spacing right now on the actual uh, species name for that, so we'll just keep, <laughs> we'll just keep moving. <laughs> so now, one thing about uh, the to keep in mind is that with a black walnut and with any walnut, all the walnuts, as far as I can recall exude stuff out of their roots, the juglone out of the roots, but the black walnut exudes the most. And so when you start talking about how it's like this really tough species, I kind of wonder how much of the tough might come from the fact that it's effectively poisoning other species around it. That's true. Uh, that's a good and question. I don't have... So now, about a third of the species out there that I'm aware of um, uh, can tolerate juglone. They'll, they'll put up with it. And they'll be fine. And it's it's uh, two thirds where it's kind of like uh, they're sad. They you know they're sad or they die. They can't handle it. Right. And and the um, so I, I actually planted some walnuts at my place. Uh, in particular, I planted heart nuts, which are uh, Juglans ailantifolia. Uh, so they have leaves kind of like ailanthus, and uh, they're a Japanese walnut. And then I actually did plant some butternuts which uh, I'm remembering now is, is Juglans Cinerea, C-I-N-E-R-E-A. And and so I had to select out some plants that would be compatible with those. And uh, the elm group of plants is a, is a good group, like the hackberry, for example. Uh, and then also the mulberries, which we just covered. Mulberries are, are also tolerant. Uh, elderberries are a really good uh, group of plants that are tolerant to the juglone, so you can grow them together. And also autumn olive... Uh, Gumi, the Eliagnus plants, are, are really tolerant of it. So you, you can have a pretty good productive and support uh, species guild right there, which is those plants for your, your tree crops. So now uh, I'm moving out of the walnut order. Uh, we're going to stay in the witch hazel subclass, and we're going to move into the beech order. Um, and <laughs> that's B E E C H beach, um, right? Which is primarily yeah, fagaceae, fagaceae. Okay. And and the beach are primarily, I think, East Coast, Eastern North American plants for the American beaches, at least. Um, and then I know that the northeastern uh, Native Americans would eat beech nuts and and cultivated forests of them. But under the beach family, there's there's two great big, um, uh, well, genera. So actually, there's eight genera, but uh, there's there's two that are that we're, are going to be familiar to us. One is the beach, and the second one is the oak. 
Yeah, and actually it leaves out um, some of the genera which I thought would be a very very much of interest to us, in particular the chestnut. Oh man, we left the chestnut out. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that he what left. What the it hell? Out. <laughs> so, uh, oh, here's here's a cork comes from the bark of the cork oak, but uh, that would be the the Quercus. This is the Quercus genera, right? And the cork <clears throat> oak is Quercus suber, and that that's more of a a warm uh, weather species. I don't think it it can tolerate colder temperatures than about zero degrees or ten degrees Fahrenheit. I I saw a video on YouTube where they were harvesting cork. And I kind of got the impression that it was uh, in the same area where they grow olives. So warmer than Montana, but, you know, not tropical or anything like that. Yeah, um, my understanding is that one of the uh, actual traditional sustainable agriculture methods of Western Europe was uh, in Spain, and they were the cork, pork, and chestnut forests. And so they would have the oak trees and and the chestnut trees, and the mast from those trees would be fed to pigs. They just you know uh, run pigs through the forest, and then they would come in and harvest the cork from the cork oak and the wood from the cork oak for for building, and then they also had the chestnut. And so you have a pretty good protein and oil and carbohydrate uh, sweet right there. And you have forest uh, perennial polyculture, which is you know kind of a a signature of true long-term sustainable agriculture. Now, I always kind of thought it was funny that, you know, for a, a lot of trees, like, you know, for an apple tree, the fruit is the apple. For the plum tree, the fruit is the plum. And for the oak tree, the, the fruit, the nut, is not the oak nut, but the acorn. And so, uh, always one of those little oddities. But uh, acorns, uh, reading from the book here, acorns are edible and highly nutritious, Rich in carbohydrates, oil, and protein, but they also contain the astringent tannic acid and some bitters. The tannin content varies widely between the species, making some palatable raw and others unpalatable. I'm always glad when a book like this mentions palatability. Yeah, not just edibility. (laughs) Yeah, you can eat it and not die. (laughs) And be very sorry. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you'll usually regret it within seconds. <laughs> and you make the fucker face. And your tongue moves out. Yeah. I'm done. I'm done. You're a moron. I'm out of here. <laughs> and if you're lux- uh, lucky, it's also a laxative. <laughs> the, the acorn should be cracked open and the nuts removed, then ground into flour. It may be possible to leach the whole nuts after shelling, but this would take longer to remove the tannin. The nuts or flour can be leached by a couple methods. It can be placed in a cloth bag and soaked in a stream. The tannic acid will wash out over a period of time. Alternately, the flour can be boiled in several changes of water. Dark water indicates high concentrations of tannin. The water is changed until it remains clear. Another approach is to leave the tannic acid in the acorns, but to neutralize it by adding gelatin or milk or some other protein to the flour to bind the acid. So that that sounds great. I like the part up here also where it talks about the bur oak is the least palatable. <laughs> Yet it's the most commonly planted one in Montana. 
<laughs> so I, I I would love to get a sack full of low tannin acorns. Uh, you know, when the time when the day comes that I have land, um, because of the mast uh, thing for the hogs as well. I mean, I think the hogs would appreciate the um, the low tannin bit as well as you know people. Definitely, and uh, you know one of the the oak trees that I I like a fair amount to plant is uh, the English oak, uh, Quercus ruber, and uh, or Quercus rober, R O B U R, and and that is uh, often in a fastigate form, meaning it's pretty much columnar, straight up and down, and also produces very large acorns that are about an inch and a half long. And so I, I like that, especially for smaller areas, you know, because often oak trees are big and broad and spreading and can take up a lot of area. So if you have a smaller area, that's a, a good option is that fast-to-get English oak. Are you ready to leave the Beach family? Yes, I am. And we'll go next door and visit the Birch family. Beaches and Birches. I like the Birch family a lot, too. I, I thought it was, you know, so, of course, um, uh, one one tree that, that fits in the Birch family... Uh, is the alder, and so then of course there's birch, um, and then there's the hazelnut. But uh, and so those all are in the birch family. So I never I never thought about it being that way. But uh, um, apparently it has to do with the uh, well. Anyway, so alder is one, and and in reading the descriptions here, uh, it, they go on a lot about the color of the barks and things like that for the alder. But they don't mention that it's a nitrogen fixer. Which is kind of uh, frustrating from a permaculture perspective because those are plants that we're very interested in. Anything that right. fixes nitrogen or has some other uh, association with uh, microbiology that concentrates a, a nutrient, especially nitrogen or phosphorus or potassium, which are, are macronutrients. But really any, any nutrient, any accumulator is of interest to us in a permaculture system. Right. So, uh, and for birch, it says the trees can be tapped for syrup, like maple trees in the early spring. And I've heard of people having, you know, birch syrup before. I've never tasted it myself. Uh, the sap is about 50 to 60 parts water to one part syrup. So it must be boiled down extensively to get the syrup. So that's probably why it's done much uh, less frequently than something like a maple tree. Right, right. I know that um, uh, there's a, a nursery up in Maine that sells a, uh, a tree. It's a, a silver maple, the sweet sap silver maple. And um, so normally you get a sugar maple. But this silver maple, this particular variety of a silver maple, um, uh, grows like three to four times faster than a sugar maple. And it produces um, a, a, a sap that has, is more concentrated in sugar. So um, I think it's got two and a half times more sugar per gallon. So you don't. So I, I guess that means two and a half times less time that you have to boil it. Right, which is potentially a lot of wood or fuel. Not not to mention time. Right. So and then it, and then hazelnuts and filberts are the exact same thing. Um, and uh, uh, under that, it says the nuts of all species, and so all of the hazelnuts and filberts, the genus Corylus, is that right? Corylus, yeah. Corylus. The nuts of all species are edible, raw, or cooked. 
The nuts are reportedly sweet and comprised of up to 65% oil. The nut is sweetest during the milk stage prior to maturity. Which is interesting that, that you don't actually want to wait for them to mature. You want to harvest them prior to their maturity for uh, the best nut. I wonder uh, when they have the, the highest oil content, if that's at maturity or prior to also. Because uh, mm. I've heard that uh, hazelnut oil is a potential uh, marketable item now with a pretty high value. So if you're looking to you know get some high value crops, that that might be something that that is of interest. Also, it says here that there's a uh, no hazelnuts that are native to Montana, uh, but there's several that are native to North America. Even though he has a dash, and and one, for example, Corliss americana, the American hazelnut. And then also uh, the beaked hazelnut, Coralis cornuta, and both of those are, are sold in bulk and, and I think also as seed by Lawyer Nursery, which has a big nursery in, in Plains, Montana. So it, Which is near here. Actually, how close is that to Missoula? Uh, I think Plains is just a little more than an hour to the northwest. Of Missoula. And, and probably a little bit colder and maybe even drier. Uh, I believe Plains is actually a little warmer than Missoula. Wow. Because it's downriver. Okay. Plus, uh, Paradise. Well, yeah, you and I were in Paradise. Remember when you and I were in Paradise? Yeah. We drove through Plains. Okay. Yeah, and remember we were kind of exploring all the stuff about how it's a whole zone warmer than Missoula because of the, all that south-facing rock? Yeah, the big canyons with all the exposed rock. Yeah, yeah, so Plains is like right in that area. In fact, I think when we drove there, we went to Plains, then we hung a left to get to Paradise. Okay, from Plains to Paradise. <laughs> Plains does sound kind of like... And that's a funny thing, too. It says Plains, right? The, the name of the town is Plains. Does it look like it's... Uh, it's a, made out of a plane, like like uh, it's flat. Does it look flat? Like the the Great Plains? No, I, like I didn't. I didn't see anything that looked really flat out there. That was some serious industrial strength mountains there. Yeah, that was that was, that was yeah that was the Rocky Mountains in full glory, and I, they uh, some some comedian called it plains. <laughs> and and we also stopped off and I took your picture there at Perma. At the yeah, the the perma the city of Perma, Perma city. Perma, yeah, yeah, and they they didn't have much in the way of culture though. No, I think it was one <laughs> building. Yeah, yeah, and and the guy he might have had one tooth, which was his uh, Perma tooth. <laughs> it was his perma tooth. Yeah, yeah, he was a happy guy. <laughs> okay, on that note, I'm out of stuff to talk about on this section that we. Uh, that we covered in this one, in this podcast. Uh, okay, that that sounds great to me. I think there's some really good info in there, and, and uh, I'm actually trialing some of these these hazelnuts with the walnuts to see if they suffer from the juglands at all, too. So hopefully I'll, I'll have some more information on that in the future. But it seems like a lot of these uh, witch hazel subclass families are the ones that are tolerant to that, that juglone. So and and uh, I kind of did some skimming ahead on on the book and and I'm I'm pretty excited about some of the stuff that's coming up. Um, but all right, so <clears throat> for now, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com where we talk about stinging nettles, homesteading, and permaculture 
all the time.